Hello, Charlie Gladstone here, and welcome to episode 32 of my Mavericks podcast. Today's chat is with Thomasina or Tommy Myers, author, chef, mother, business magnate, and Guardian columnist. I went to see Tommy at home on the second day of summer 2018. I don't think it was the official second day of summer, but it was one of those extraordinary days that we had in April when summer suddenly fell onto us without any proper warning. She actually had emailed me after 2am the night before our talk to see if I could make it a little bit earlier, which I did, but you get an idea of the energy that someone like Tommy has when she's emailing at 2am. She should not be thinking about work at that time of day, I don't think. Anyway. I met her outside her home with her youngest child on her way back from the school run and we went into her house. Her kitchen, as you might expect, is a proper cook's, or should I say chef's kitchen, with an enormous quantity of of books, a huge larder and proper food, as well as children's toys covering every surface. A lovely house, of course. I think today's chat is a truly inspiring and educational one. about the remarkable journey of a very modest uh, but absolutely true maverick. I hope during this that my stomach rumbling isn't picked up on the uh, microphones which are attached to my t-shirt. I'd I'd eaten a rather small and not very nice banana on the way to Tommy's house. I don't like eating breakfast but I thought I ought to have something to eat and I could hear my stomach rumbling the whole way through. If you pick up the rumble of stomach, then I'm sorry, it's only natural. Anyway, without any further introduction, here is me talking to Thomasina Myers. So many of the people that I interview, which is really interesting about you, is that you're you're doing something, I mean, I know that it has its strains and its stresses, but you're doing something that you fundamentally love, Mm. which, which is much more unusual than people think. I mean, food, obviously you came to food, you know, relatively late in your kind of education. Yes. But, but do you love it, do you? Well, I always, I mean, I always cooked. So I grew up at my mother's chained. I basically, if I could be as close to my mother, like literally my every side of my body kind of pressed against hers, then I felt kind of happy. And so I think it was just my way of just hanging out with her. And, okay. I, and I was very bad at playing. So dolls and stuff like that, I was just so bored by them. Right. And my, you know, I remember my brother and sister being able to spend hours searching for a four-leaf clover in the grass. And I'd be just like, oh, come on. Were you shy or insecure as a child? No, not at all. I just, I just loved the kitchen because th- th- there was so much to do. And my mother would teach me, you know, she'd teach me really early on how to get the best out of sweating onions. And right, okay. How to make a white sauce without the lumps in it. And I just loved learning all those things. Um, and you know, she, she, they didn't have any cash, my parents, but she was brilliant. You know, the way you can just make food taste delicious, very simple food Yes. by just that thing of making onion sweet, um, by cooking long and slow and butter and, but, but it wasn't, but, but so you had a creative bent, but I mean, I'm just interested by that idea of being next to your mum, because I remember as a very shy child. My, my own real memory of my mum is, is sort of standing behind her. Oh, yeah. And that security blanket. But it wasn't that at all. It was just... I d- no, I mean, I don't... We... It, it was quite an insecure family upbringing. 
I mean, there was quite a lot of drama generally. Um, it wasn't, I, I guess it wasn't particularly happy. I mean, they loved us very much, my parents, but, you know, there's all sorts of kind of mental illness floating around in our family backgrounds. So I think all three of us actually grew up pretty insecure, actually. Right, about okay. It. But, <clears throat> but what I loved about the kitchen was you could do stuff. So um, my parents worked all the time. So when I was very young, we moved into this big house in Acton that was six bedsits. And they, by themselves, single-handedly, pieced it all back together. Redid the cornicing, the dado rails. My father built the staircase. You know, they literally from top to bottom. Oh, really? So in 14 years. I remember age kind of 14 when we first got carpets. Just like the most amazing feeling after having floorboards for... You know, when we first moved in, there was no back wall and our, we'd wake up every morning and our school uniforms would be soaked and that kind of thing. So they were, they were quite hip. They were hippies, sort I guess. Sort of bohemian, but highly creative. Yeah, but that's all they did was the house. So we never did. We never went to exhibitions. We never, we never did anything. Um, that, from, that was my memory, definitely. So, and I, I remember just being bored a lot. But in the kitchen, I wasn't bored because I could just open a cookbook, look inside the fridge and, and just create something. And so that was my kind of outlet, I guess. That's what I could do independently. So it was the creation rather, as much as the result. I mean, I think there's always this, this interesting thing about cooking is that there are two parts of the process, it seems to me. One is the creation, and then the other is the kind of reward of people, yeah. plus yourself loving it. But for yeah. you, it was more the former, was it? Well, I loved, I loved the creativity, but definitely the, that thing of people just going, wow, this is delicious. I mean, the praise is definitely part of the cooking thing. You know, when you... It's that acceptance, not more than acceptance, isn't it? It's that kind of an adulation when you're feeding people and they just are so pleased. Nothing really beats that feeling when you fed someone and, and you can see the pleasure on other people's faces. Yeah, I think that's oxygen for yeah. adults and children, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? I mean, yeah. We, yeah, it's really interesting that I don't think we praise each other as adults often enough. We don't say nice things to our friends yes. often enough, I yeah. don't think. No, I think you're completely right. Yeah, um, like when someone's wearing a beautiful dress, you should say, that's a beautiful dress. Although it's almost non-PC these days to compliment someone. Do you think that's British? Woman. Uh, maybe it is British. Maybe it is British. Yeah. Maybe. I always try to say to people when, when I think they look amazing, but you're right, you know, it could, I, I could put my foot in it, I suppose. But also, I think on the tube, you know, I like to smile at people on the tube. My mother, I remember we used to drive to the underground car park in Ken High Street, and my mother would always smile, have a really sunny smile, at the guy taking the ticket. And she'd say, you must always make someone smile in your day. And she'd always make that guy smile who was always just doing this really boring job. And I think I kind of got that from her, just that it doesn't cost anything to smile at people and say hello. So the strange thing about this is that you were clearly creative and then you started your career as being a VAT consultant or something like that. I mean, what, what happened there? Well, the thing is, I, I wasn't, you know, it's bad the way in families you get typecast. So I wasn't the creative one. My sister was the creative one. My sister is an incredibly creative artist and was always painting and doing wonderful things. And my, even my brother built incredible things with Lego and I was bored by toys. So then I always thought I was not the creative one. And I was very good at maths. My grandfather was a math mathematician um, and a kind of inventor. So, so that's what I thought I was. And, right, okay. and I guess that's what, you know, my father who wasn't very good at making money, thought, brilliant, this is our great hope, and definitely pushed me down that way, thinking, okay, she's got a brain, let's make her, you know, she can make some money, where I failed to do. So he very much pushed me down that way, which is really interesting, because 
He had a very bad um, housemaster at Sherburn who told him he couldn't go to university. He was pushed into engineering. He's got very much an engineering brain. But um, so he tried all his life to do this conventional route and failed miserably at it. And then at 50, he started making furniture and he's brilliant at it. And, and he blossomed. And blossomed. Think? Yeah. And he, it's interesting how he ch- tried to make me do exactly the same thing. Um, but luckily, I kind of switched earlier. I wonder if the world's changing, but I mean, that's probably a conversation for another day. Yeah. In that, in the, actually, all of my four children who are working and doing creative things. Yeah. But those professions didn't really exist when we were. No. No, and also, up. I, think it's, I think it's tough on young people these days because we are solve this idea that anyone can do something they love but not every job you love makes much money and it is quite tough out there so I think that is a tough one. I I think that's a massive problem I have a lot of my children's generation friends coming to me and they look at me and I think they see you know sort of shops and pub and festival and all this stuff and um, and I think they think you know I want to be like that and when, 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 when I actually tell them that it's brutal hard work and they probably won't make very much money and they'll probably want to kill themselves about once every three months, they can't, can't quite sort of believe it because they've been painted this picture of sort of people with MacBooks and kind of yeah. artisan coffee, having an amazing life, driving a nice car and living in a nice house. Yeah. But it is brutal hard work because essentially you've ended up as a business person. Yeah. But the journey has been... You went, you, you, so tell me a bit about being a VAT consultant, because I find that fascinating. Maths yeah. brain, slightly, sort of slightly strong-armed by implication into that. Oh, totally strong-armed. So um, I remember the first... So the reason I got it, I think, because we were competing, it was with Arthur Anderson, it was one of those uh, university uh, scholarship things, sponsorship. And um, I was so disinterested that I was as cool as a cucumber in my interviews. I still maintain to this day that's how I got it. Um, and then I remember saying to my father, no, no, no. Um, and then going the first day and just feeling like the prison gates were shutting around me. I was living in just off the Portobello Road with a much older boyfriend who had a friend who worked at Vogue. And she kept saying, I'll get you a job at Vogue. You can get work experience. My gap here. You know, my friends were traveling around the world. And I was having to put a suit on and go into kind of an office in the city being an accountant when... All these, and I, but it offered lots of money at university, which is, and my father kept saying, think of all that money at university, you've got to do it, you've got to do it. And the idea of doing work experience for five months for no money at Vogue, I mean, I just, I remember my boyfriend at the time going, just quit, just quit, just take the job, you know, just do what you want to do. But of course I didn't. And then in the end, I got sacked three days before the end of my nine months, um, which was at the same time when I had also failed my Oxford interview, didn't do as well in my A-levels, and then, and then that, was the th- that was the kind of final piece. When right, OK. Just before the end. So I, I stuck it out the nine months, and then just before the end, they sacked me and said, no, we're not going to pay you through university after all. So I did it all for nothing. You're joking. Yeah. It's quite bad. So bad, then you yeah. went to university, and did, was, that sort of, did, was, that, was that moment of those three things happening cathartic, or were you still thinking, I just need to get into a boring job? No, well then the dark years happened. So then I had a dark period, which lasted about eight years. Um, so that was just kind of, you know, I mean, my twin brother was schizophrenic. I kind of was all over the place too. Um, so that was, that was kind of, university was not great. 
pretty unhappy. Um, and then London, just trying to find something that I was interested in. So I was a digital strategist at the height of the dot-com boom, living in, near working Soho, thinking this should be good. And not feeling good. <laughs> totally disinterested. I mean, I, I saw at that stage, I definitely thought I was, you know, flawed, flawed goods. It's basically, I, I thought it was a kind of broken thing. No hope for me because I just, you know, wasn't up to anything. So that was kind of, that was not a great period. Um, but I still hunted. I guess somewhere, you know, the human spirit is tenacious. And so I was still hunting. Well, your hunting. spirit is. A lot of people would have given up <clears throat> at that stage, I suspect. Well, I don't know. But um, one, I was determined to get better. So I was, you know, definite mental illness issues. I was, I was really determined to kind of overcome that. And then, and then two, I was hunting for something to do. Because at school, I had this quite strong urge that I wanted to do something. I was really into the planet and um, ecology, and I just had this per- I've had this burning purpose. I just wanted to do something in my life, and then I had no. I kept like failing and getting yeah. sacked, and yeah, so but I not really was- understanding. Kind of, it, it wasn't failing. It was not really understanding what you were good at. It sounds like to me. Yeah, well, I am awfully. I'm one of those people that if I'm not interested in something, I just turn off, and I'm hopeless. You know, and anyone close to me will say how incredibly frustrating I am but once I kind of get less interested then I'm just no one can make me do anything so I'm frustrating like that Um, but on on the flip side when I find the thing I love then I will work at it 24 hours a day so I'd always cooked but it didn't take it was um, a fashion show a catwalk show with Clarissa Dixon Wright where she was this brain box who jacked it all in and started cooking I'd always watched on television Two Fat Ladies and I asked her advice and she said, well, what are your passions in life? The first question she asked me when I kind of came soul bearing to her. And, and I said, well, food, I've always cooked. She was like, well, why aren't you cooking? She looked at me like I was a complete Muppet. You know, it was so obvious to her. It's easy advice to give that, actually. It's harder to, for the recipient of the advice to execute it successfully, I think. Yeah, but it was a complete pivotal moment. She phoned up Doreen Allen, who's the alma mater of Ballymaloo. Uh, she got me, uh, there was a big waiting list for the next course. She got me jacked up to the front of the waiting list. Someone dropped out. Uh, they phoned me up and said, there's a place that starts in 10 days. Uh, and I drove my 2CV. Uh, I, was, I had a boyfriend who lived on Anglesey. And I remember driving from Anglesey across the water uh, and down to Cork, where it was literally like someone had waved a magic wand. It was just like... A beautiful place with an amazing garden and... Beautiful place. Um, you know, I was learning how to make sourdough, learning about growing greens and salad leaves, and we'd eat this incredible food all the time. We were making incredible food. It was creative. I was very lucky. I shared a cottage with uh, a brummy called Stevie Paul, who you know, who, who's very creative. Um, uh, also with an Australian girl from Melbourne who went on to run the Melbourne Food Festival. Um, uh, a pair of twins who live in Galway who are fantastic. We just, we, I think in any kind of school like that, you can either be with a bunch of people who are just not really sure what they're doing, but our cottage seemed to be full of people. It's, it's just the stars aligning, <clears throat> isn't it? Yeah. It's like that thing with children that are in a good, you know, you can have a brilliant school, but the children can be in a bad year mm. or a bad group in a bad year and yeah. it just doesn't work and it works for the others. How amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so Stevie Pyle has d- done remarkable things. Yeah, he really has. Um, but but you but so this this was this was like it was all coming together for you at this stage. And well, I guess I was still 
<clears throat> I was still struggling with my kind of um I was still struggling a bit with that kind of eight years of you know dark the darkness but um but finally I had a purpose and I stayed out and made cheese in West Cork so after the course finished I stayed out in Ireland for another three months I made sourdough bread and I started realizing that I was onto something I finally knew I didn't know what I was going to do but my life was going I, I suddenly felt like I was the mistress of my destiny that I could actually have an, an, an it was just very exciting, um, very exciting time. I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, I, went, I went and worked in a food shop called Valandry in Great Portland Street. Um, Which is also part restaurant as well. Part restaurant. There was a bakery downstairs. So obviously I could be completely bitten by the sourdough bug. So I was making bread you know, every morning in London. Uh, and, and then I met this great baker. He now lives around the corner in Kensal Rise from me, who, who every morning would make croissants and pau chocolat from scratch and incredible I mean and, and in those days the bread thing hadn't happened no so how long ago was it this, this was uh I mean 15 years ago maybe right or 14 yeah. years so ago. it really hadn't happened no so it was very unusual to have a bakery making every morning incredible buttery croissants you know I could I still remember that machine him pushing the the pastry and doubling it over and doubling over to get the leaves of the croissant dough. So um, that was brilliant. So I started selling all his stuff at a, a, far, a market that Henrietta Green had in Covent Garden. And I did their website and I did their kind of newsletter. And I just started getting in, into all the aspects of it. But my boss... How did you connect? How did you, because Henrietta Green's market was, again, quite a, <clears throat> a, an early... Kind, it was an early yeah. one. Well, it was the first well-known one of the new farmer's market. Yeah. So... It, it's, it seems in a way that although you're painting this as destiny, you, you, your antennae were out. You, you kind of figured out who good people were. So, I, I mean, I was on a mission at this stage. If you think, I, I, you know, in my book, I'd wasted a decade of faffing around looking at my tummy button, failing. So I was on a real mission. And um, Darina Allen and Bally Minute introduced me to Slow Food. So I immediately became a committee member of Slow Food in London. I was going to Borough Market all the time. I was meeting loads of people. I mean, you know, people look at me now who knew me in those days. They were almost rude about me. They, you know, I was. I, I guess I was on a mission. I, I, there were what there sort was, of get out of the way? I'm on the way. Well, I don't know, but I remember this 50 year old being a committee member with me on, in Slow Food, and she definitely didn't like me. She thought I had way too much attitude. But I was desperate to 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 make sense of my life, to make it worth something. I guess. Still didn't know what it was going to do either. I was just trying every. Trying pushing as many doors as possible to see which one. But it was open. food and sustainability <clears throat> fundamentally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And then when did this? When did the Mexican bar come into play? So on my gap year, I'd done this awful nine months being a VAT consultant. But at the end, they gave me this chunk of money to go travelling, and uh, a girl from school. What? So they didn't pay your your way through university, but they at least gave you something. Yeah. And in fact, I think I kind of threatened to see them and ask for a pitiful amount. When I look back, there were there was some discriminatory thing. They were pretty awful to me, actually. Um, and uh, someone helped me take... Anyway, uh, typically, I was so inexperienced. I should have tried to get the money they should have paid me at university. But instead, I asked for some £500 or right, something, okay. which they coughed up within, you know, without even... Anyway, I, I went to Mexico with this money. A girl from school 
had gone to Mexico. All my other friends were long gone, had spent, you know, six months in India. It seemed better to hook up with someone who'd only just gone. So we ended up in Mexico. I, had, I spoke Spanish because I'd studied at school. And we spent a week with Pat and John Holmes, who, she was an architect, and they'd lived in Mexico for 20 years, English family. He ran an advertising agency out there. Um, and she was an incredible cook. And in fact, my bookshelves in my kitchen here basically are modelled from my memory of her, of her kitchen in Mexico. Uh, and they were really good at parties. And they threw a wild party. Uh, 60 people came and the food was out of this world. And I remember eating all the food thinking, what's this food? Like, literally, what's this food? Because I arrived in Mexico with no preconception of anything. I literally hadn't, done a, I hadn't opened a book. And for me, well, we also only had Tex-Mex food in this country. It was kind of shit, wasn't it? Te well, that's what everyone thought Mexican food was. They yeah. thought it was Tex-Mex. Yeah. This is what I talk to people about. You know, I still, people still don't get it that Tex-Mex is a cuisine from a tiny part of Texas, which is not even part of Mexico right. anymore. Right, okay. It's an American food. Mexico, they call it the cuisines of Mexico because there are many different cuisines in a vast country which span, you know, desert, mountain range, river, yeah. sea, and 62 native Indian languages still alive spoken. Uh, one of the most biodiverse countries in the world. Incredible produce. The, you know, there yeah, are... Yeah, no, sure. I mean, I think it's just interesting. I mean, I, so you were at this, this amazing party with the table groaning with incredible food. And, and did you have a, a So sort of I moment? then spent two and a half months traveling around Mexico eating everything in sight. My companion wouldn't touch anything. She was so worried about getting food poisoning. And I literally ate everything. And I just thought this food is extraordinary. And I, I mean, I just couldn't get over it with the food. And, and it, it lit something because I'd never, I'd never, and I loved food. Remember, I've been cooking since I was six. Yes, yes. So I got back to London going, I'm going to eat tacos now, the soft tortillas. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to eat lots of Mexican food. And I literally couldn't find it anywhere. And it, it, you know, it took me then another eight years to, to work, start working in food. But I still cooked always and I still couldn't see Mexican food anywhere. And, and I just kept thinking back to this food. Was it as good as I remembered? Still no Mexican food anywhere. How can this country, how can London with all its diverse cuisines st still not have any Mexican food there? So it wasn't until I was working in the food shop again and I, was, I thought actually... I've got to do something new now. I've been there for 18 months. My boss wasn't particularly nice. I thought, what am I going to do? And I phoned up a friend called Sam Hart, who runs Barafina and Cuevardis. And I really was intrigued by the food of um, Catalonia and Barcelona. And I thought I could go and work there. Uh, so I just went and talked to him. I said, look, do you, do you know of any jobs going And he Barcelona? and his brother are brilliant, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're, they are two of the best restaurateurs. Yeah. In Britain, I'd say. They are. It seems to me like you knew how to be successful, which was just not to faff around at this stage, dealing with people who weren't particularly good at their game. Because everyone you're mentioning is really, really good at what they do. Well, I think the one thing I've always been good at, which I always tell young people to do, is, is ask for help and, and, and knock on doors. And sometimes you end up having a coffee with someone and you're so embarrassed because you're wasting their time. You know you're wasting their time. You don't know why you're there and you don't know what you're asking them. But in the end, you get enough kind of bits of advice to kind of send you on your way. Sam, I knew through a friend um, and he just had the Barcelona connection. I knew, you know, he, he had the Spanish restaurant. So um, that was just fluke. Um, 
But but yeah, he said, listen, I don't really know. I don't really know much about Boston. We just go there. We just go there and recce trips. But my mate Crispin is about to open a huge restaurant cocktail bar in Mexico City. And he is definitely looking for people. And the moment he said Mexico, you know, my and, and Sam knew the people I'd say with in Mexico because Sam had lived in Mexico for eight years. So the Mexico connection was quite strong there. Right. Um, and so he knew I'd been to Mexico. It's a small world, the people who'd been to Mexico. So, I, I mean, literally, I think I'd spent, I, I just got a job at the River Cafe. I spent a day waiting at the River Cafe. And then I got the phone call from Crispin. And he was like, can you fly out? And, you know, that was it. I was off. Not a tough decision, because the River Cafe is a pretty good um, I mean, obviously now I look at the, yeah, yeah. I mean, it would have been amazing. Do you have River Cafe on your CV? Uh, no, no, one, one day, day. <laughs> one day. I don't think they even acknowledge it. I mean, it was rid- ridiculous. If I could have cooked at the River Cafe, that would have been extraordinary. That would have been a wonderful thing to do. Anyway, um, Mexico, I went to Mexico. I lived there for a year, opened the cocktail bar, traveled, went to all the really foodie states, really kind of started understanding how the food from Veracruz was different for the food in Oaxaca and the Yucatan and Puebla, uh, Michoacan and... You know, and as you say, you know, even then I was kind of getting on a bus for six hours so I could go and meet Diana Kennedy um, on her ranch. And I do, but I'm very gregarious. I love meeting people. It's funny. People talk about being, you know, connections and networking. I never do any net, you know, I just, I, I never do any networking events. I kind of, they slightly horrify me. But I guess naturally, I love chatting to people anyway. I don't think you have mm. to do networking events, and I'll tell you why. Because A, you're gregarious, but B, you've got charisma. So people will naturally come to you. And I think that, I think that does, you know, you're, you're lucky. You're kind of one of those people that's separate to having to do all that bullshit. So I've never been to Mexico. I've been to a fair, a fair bit of South America. But the other thing that strikes me about Mexico, which I, I find very appealing, is the aesthetics. Oh, I mean, and, and I may be generalising, but I mean, the colour and, and all of the Day of the Dead stuff that I know that you do with your festival, it, that, that's, that must have been appealing as well. So the, 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 the design sensibility in Mexico is so strong. The, the cultural side is, it, it's really hard to work out why they are so strong in the arts. But, you know, the film directors, the artists, um, the cool restaurants... Uh, there's a there's a wonderful place in um, Baja California. Uh, the entire Baja California has this kind of foodie explosion going on at the moment, and every new microbrewery and vineyard and cool restaurant with biodynamic farm is designed to its nth level. I mean, it just looks so cool. Everything has this aesthetic to it. And I, I do think that's really interesting. It is. And I think, I mean, for me, the only other places I've discovered that have, a, that have what I imagine Mexico has are Japan, particularly Tokyo, and Rajasthan, where, you know, that, that things are so specific and so thorough, whether you like them or not. Yes. I like them both enormously. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, did, so was that, that was really sort of tickling you at the same time. Yeah, I think, you know, I landed on my feet. I arrived in Mexico City. We opened this incredibly cool cocktail bar and, you know, Diego Luna was hanging out and Gael Garcia and, it, you know, I, I, I was kind of parachuted into this very cool part of the Mexico City scene. Although it wasn't without its kind of uh, drawbacks in that I was running a cocktail bar 
my team were the guys working in the bar with me. So they were my people. Um, and yet the people I was living with were the other people on the other side of the bar. So my people would have to travel 90 minutes to get to work. Um, and then they'd stop work at three o'clock in the morning and travel another 90 minutes home. And then they'd get up early the next day and they were being paid a pittance. And meanwhile, the other people who were kind of almost also my people a bit were just, you know, floozing along, getting free drinks all night. I don't think that's unusual. I mean, you know, that's hospitality. Yeah. Because you've got to have the intriga as well as the, yeah. you know, the bellboys yeah. or whatever. So, um, I, and I, you know, South American countries, there are those extremes. In lots of countries, there are those extremes. But it was very, um, it was very obvious, that huge difference between the very rich and the very poor. And that, it did, it, it was slightly uncomfortable. I, so I, whilst I loved Mexico, I definitely, um, parts of it, I found quite tricky like that. And also the culturally, I didn't expect the culture to be so different. Um, I really struggled to find a good girlfriend. You know, in this country, I've got girlfriends are like the, you know, the people you phone up when you're... And I found, you know, the South American girl was not like me. I, you know, in those days, I never wore any makeup and they were always groomed to the nth degree. And, and I was very tall. I think they thought I was, you know, coming after their boyfriends or... So that, that bit I found quite tricky. I, f I was quite lonely, I think. So it wasn't forever, that? Well, I was 29. I was living with a bunch of guys who were, you know, having a lot of fun. And meanwhile, I was, m lots of my friends back home were starting to get married. And, and, so, and I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So it was definitely not forever. But I you were beginning back. to figure stuff out. And was, it was after that that you entered MasterChef? It was straight after that. So I came back to London. So that's the straight... I mean, that's the most extraordinary thing. You won MasterChef. Yeah. I mean that is truly amazing. Just tell me a little bit of, I mean, about that because I've always known that about you, but I've never really sort of talked. Well, I've never talked about it with you. Well, it was, it was um, funny. I mean, so I got back to London. I was completely broke. I'd been working on a charity cookbook for two years whilst I was living in Mexico and whilst I was working at the shop. So uh, that came out when I got back from Mexico, but it'd been a lot of work. So I was kind of pretty heavily in debt. Uh, I was jobbing, looking after people's families and doing cooking jobs like that um, and thinking maybe I'll be a food writer, maybe that's what I'll be uh, and and that's I saw this advert for MasterChef, I kind of applied and uh, then I was on this job looking after a family in Norfolk when I got the phone call going, we'd like you to come to London for one of our interviews, whatever they're called, uh, and auditions. And I got permission from the family to leave early on the Friday and I had to career down in my TCV. Um, I think I worked out that I wasn't going to make it because of Friday night traffic. You know, so I was on the phone. In those days, you could do that. On the phone, driving, saying to my father, help, I need to catch a train. Him going, there's one from Royston leaving in 25 minutes. You've got to catch that one. And screech into Royston station with my prepared salad, which I had to bring to the audition, which then flew all over the station platform, jumping onto the train, going to my audition. Did you re it really did fly all over the platform? Yeah, no, it? I scooped out all the gravel on track. <laughs> Still delicious. It was a Mori recipe. Wonderful um, grilled aubergine with lovely garlic and mint. And Anyway, um... Uh, got into the audition, talked so fast. I think they thought I was completely mad. They thought, yeah, this girl will, um, she'll be interesting on camera. <laughs> um, and got, got to the first day of filming, thought it was a complete joke, all of it. I literally, I didn't really watch television those days. Um, and 
it was Lloyd Graceman. It was the first year they'd redone it. So before that, it had just been Lloyd Graceman, so, which I'd watched and I cooked from all the Lloyd Graceman MasterChef cookbooks. But yeah, I didn't really know what to expect. I, I kind of, I, I got food by hook or by crook. I, you know, the, the first thing we had to cook was mashed potato. I realized suddenly it wasn't a joke. These huge cameras got wheeled out and it suddenly became serious very, very quickly. Um, that whole thing of being timed. I mean, it literally was the most terrifying thing I'd ever done. I can imagine. It was terrifying. We all had blue plasters on the whole time because when you started out, you, your hands were shaking from nerves so much. I mean, you were just a bundle of nerves. And so you were always cutting your fingers because your hands were shaking so much from It fear. looks like that. I mean, they, they, they obviously try to make those nerves in yeah. you, don't they? I mean, that's part of the dynamic of that programme, I think. Yeah. Is it? Or yeah. But, but I guess, you know, the, the thing that stood me in good stead was that I'd, I'd, you know, I'd, I kind of swum through so much crap already in my life that I, I was quite good at digging deep. So there were times in that show when I was just like, I literally cannot go on. This is, this is hell. I mean, I remember we were flown up by helicopter to go on a battleship, an airship carrier, and we had to cook for the whole Navy. And I remember thinking, I just can't do this anymore. Just, just, this is hell. This <laughs> is so horrible. And just thinking, oh, just get on with it. Um, and I just literally, I mean, it was a comedy of errors that I just goofed up so many times but somehow my cooking just about carried me through me through at each level were you cooking mexican stuff uh, I, mean, I, I know you said you bought a moro dish in to begin with semi-finals i cooked a mexican uh, a whole mexican uh thing a starter main course i cooked grouse with mole i did a ceviche and i did um a kind of flambéed cajeta pancake thing and i remember greg eating the grouse with mole, looking at me covering this beautiful grouse bird in this kind of gungy looking brown sauce, going, what on earth are you doing? And then him trying it and going, the thing is, I have no idea what you just cooked me, but it tastes good. And I was like, well, surely that's all that matters. So that got me through. I didn't cook that much Mexican, but I did cook some. Uh, anyway, it was, it was, it was, I, yeah, I got... And then you won. I did win. win and and that, that was presumably... An an, a sort of bizarre and extraordinary experience. Well, do you know what? It was the first time in quite a long time that I'd actually done well at anything. You know, this was this was after a long ten years of really right. screwing up. Right. Okay. Every, well, you, you know. Okay. So, so it it felt it felt pretty extraordinary. I mean, I I was pretty, but it was really tough afterwards because they don't let you t talk about it for four months. So you're in a secret place. You're still not earning any money. You still don't know what you're going to do with your life. So that was quite hard. Because it doesn't show for four months, yeah. so you have to be completely secret. So, so during those four months, were you... I examined my tummy button quite a lot, quite depressed, wondering still what I was going to do. And then on recommendation of a friend, I got in touch with Sky, who had given me a recipe for my soup book. Um, so I'd done the soup book called Soup Kitchen for Centrepoint. Um, that was a charity book you'd been working on for two years. Yeah, we got these incredible recipes from all these wonderful chefs. Um, and uh, a friend of mine from university knew Sky, and so he hooked me up with her, and I went and worked in Peacham Nurseries, and that was just, that was extraordinary. So it was a very small kitchen when I joined. They were doing 30 covers four days a week. So she put me on every section. I mean, I think my prize from MasterChef was to spend three months unpaid work, you know, peeling potatoes at the Gavroche, which age 29, when you're really broke, doesn't seem that appealing. I mean, maybe if you're 21, that's great. So we're going to work for Sky with that incredible kitchen garden, having already been at those gardens in Ballymaloe 
and uh, it was just wonderful. Did she have a Michelin star at this point? No, she got no. it when she got it off. She got it later. Right. Um, because from the from the time I was there, it grew to from thirty covers to one hundred and twenty covers from three or four days a week to six days a week, or five days. So it it grew massively, um, and you know her food is Sky's food is extraordinary. She is the most intuitive cook, and I learned so much from her. And apart from anything else, how to make a place of food look beautiful. You know, she's an artist of, of making food look And gorgeous. she was generous to you in that regard, but she, <coughs> she, was, she was sort of showing you... Well, it was, it was, a, it was an amazing kitchen because we were in the middle of this kind of muddy kind of greenhouse, really. The loose kept kind of blocking and it, it wasn't a Michelin-style kitchen. It was literally a kitchen garden where there was a little kind of hut with a restaurant in. And the girls working there were so wonderful and very arty. And so we were, it was, a, it was all girls when I started. And they were just, and they showed me how to make kind of art on a plate. And it was a really wonderful time. You know, I'd cycle there and cycle home again. And it was just very creative. I was living with Stevie Pyle at the time, who's working at the River Cafe. Um, so I was surrounded by cooks who were being creative. And, um, and you were beginning to believe in yourself. I was beginning to believe in myself. Um, and then, and then I got offered a book deal, um, and then that was a quite a hard decision. I had to leave. Pichon. You got offered the book deal after you, people knew that you'd won. <clears throat> last yeah, year. yeah. So um, the agent who had done the soup kitchen book for us pro bono, then you know I kind of said to him, "I'm doing this funny program," and he was like, "Oh," and then you know then I won it. Then he was like, then he took me out for a drink one night. And I didn't know why he was taking that string. And then he was like, I think I should represent you. I was like, what? <laughs> Me? What are you talking about? You know. Anyway, he's still my agent today. And uh, now you've done six or seven <clears throat> books? Yeah. 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 And, then, and then you, you also, immediately after MasterChef, started doing TV as well. Well, actually, I, so I stuffed up a lot of TV. So um, Stuffed up? What? Well, there were a lot of kind of, you know, like I nearly did this amazing show going around China with Pat Llewellyn. Um, and um, I had a separate TV agent who was very young, experienced. She stuffed that up. So I had, I had a lot of kind of full starts. I did a couple of shows with Channel 4, which didn't really do that well. Um, I mean, lots of people have said to me always, you're great on TV, but I've never really made it work particularly. I mean, I love doing it, but I guess I'm also doing lots of other stuff. So I haven't dedicated my life to it. I think, I think to be, probably to be, it's very hard to be truly brilliant at about five different things. And yes. you seem to do a pretty good, make yeah. a pretty good fist of it. But yeah. I mean, and then, and then Oaxaca came along and became this juggernaut. But how did that, how did that happen? So a university friend hooked me up with another university, a guy from university. He was looking to set up some restaurants. Um, he and I met over a drink in a pub uh, he was talking about a few different ideas he had, like he kind of interested in some English market food, he'd been to Brazil, he'd been to lots of different places. But interestingly, he'd also been to Mexico on his gap year. And he mentioned a burrito place he'd been to. And the second he said burrito. So by this stage, I'd been living in England again for nine months. Hadn't tasted a bite of Mexican food for nine months because obviously there was no Mexican food. It's really hard to underplay what a bad, what, bad name Mexican food. Mexican, Mexican food it was almost a dirty word. So when I talked to my friends who worked at the River Cafe or other chefs and I mentioned Mexican food, they kind of looked at me like I was mad or, or like I had no taste buds because Tex-Mex had done such a... It was the greatest culinary secret that the world has ever known that this 
vast cuisine was buried under this myth of Tex-Mex. I mean, I still find it extraordinary today that people don't know what it is. And um, so I hadn't eaten the food for nine months. It's really... It's, it, you, you forget very quickly how good something is if you haven't seen it. I think also when you're focused on, you were focused on quite a lot of other stuff. I mean, you... you yeah, and I was you, learning, you know, through MasterChef, I was learning about Elizabeth David and reading Jane Grigson and in the market, in the, in the gardens at Peacham, learning about British seasonal food. So I was learning, I was absorbing a lot of other stuff. And, and I, but then, you know, I, I, the moment Mark said burritos, I said, oh my God, there's so much more to Mexican food than the burritos. I could take you out to Mexico and show you some amazing places. And he was like, well, well, let's go. And we flew out and we spent 10 days there. And I took him to all the restaurants that I had loved. And and he had backing. He already had the kind okay, of money. So he, 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 okay, so I was going to say, so he, he was the money guy. Yeah. And you yeah. were the creative. And, yeah. um, but he is very creative too. I mean, he comes from world, he's on the, he's on the board of the Young Vic. He loves theatre. Um, and he'd always been interested in restaurants since he was about 14. He'd, he'd always wanted to either work in restaurants or theatre. He, he, he is very creative like that. He does all our interiors. Um, oh, really? Wow. Yeah, he, he really... Um, so we, we set off together. We took, it took us a year to find a site. It was kind of in the recession. It was incredibly hard to get any backing if you were on like 2008 or something? 2007, we opened so, our doors. Okay. Um, and... It was extraordinary. We knew nothing. We knew nothing. I mean, meanwhile, my peers at Ballet Malou had been working in proper restaurants for a long time. I found it difficult that I hadn't spent more time working in a kitchen. I was very torn that I should have spent more time just on the craft of cooking because I was very inexperienced and it was terrifying. I mean, opening Oaxaca was absolutely terrifying because we really literally knew nothing. But we had this burning belief that people had to know that Mexican food was not Tex-Mex, that it was different. And so we were buoyed by that. Uh, and, and, and people just loved it. They just, they kept coming back for more and more and more. Um, and it Where was, was the first one, Tommy? It was in Covent Garden in a basement. It, it, was this, it used to be this awful Irish pub, so it's incredibly cheap. Right. You know, we spent weeks scrubbing the sick off the, of the floors. And, and then we used all the floorboards to make up the walls. And, you know, from the word go, we were recycling our food waste. I really wanted to make a sustainable restaurant from the beginning. So we prototyped, we, we, we tested a prototype, one was crushing glass, compressing glass so you could recycle it more easily. Um, I worked with Slow Food and um, a kind of NGO to get good suppliers. Um, we, we tried all sorts of things. We had this great mud wall uh, and I was in the kitchen, I was the chef and it was so exciting and fun. Uh, and that was a success from day one, was it? Uh, so we lied to everyone about when we were opening because we were so terrified. And then uh, my best friend from school brought a journalist with her and he wrote a really damning review, actually. Um, but it opened the floodgates and we literally had a queue in that restaurant for two years. It wasn't until we opened Soho and South Bank that that queue started kind of dying down. Um, it, was, it was just ridiculous. It was supposed to be a fast service restaurant and people waiting an hour and a half to put their name down on the table or wait for a table. And they're waiting another hour for their food to come because we were so inexperienced in the kitchen. You know, I had this kind of six guys who'd never picked up a knife before. It was just insane. Didn't know how to season food. None of them, yeah, I mean, it was ridiculous, but good fun. And, and now it. how many have you got? So we've got 25 Oaxacas and two GF Mexicos. We grew very slowly, actually. So. We opened at the same time as many other well-known chains who have now been shutting restaurants. 
and we couldn't work out how they were opening so quickly. And I don't think we wanted to open that quickly because we were incapable of doing it anyway. I mean, the food at Oaxaca is quite sophisticated. It's quite varied and it's a lot of it's very fresh. So, you know, the training of the chefs, the training of the front of house staff, because people don't know about Mexican food, so they have to know a lot about the tequilas and the mezcals and the ingredients we're using, the, the different chilies. Um, so we just couldn't grow that quickly. And I'm so relieved now. I mean, for me, 25 restaurants seems vast anyway. So it is many. huge, um, yeah. But it's allowed you to, to, I mean, it's presumably just a different business model to the people who are trying to open 100 and then sell the company very quickly. I mean, it's just you, you were trying to build something more, I suppose, more traditional in, in terms of a business. Well, we're long term and I definitely, we're much more kind of long term thinkers, I think. I think we're in it for the... And we, I mean, I just, we, obviously my name is so attached to the food, that matters so much to me. And um, I think we still got such a job. We did a survey at the end of last year and still, you know, over 90% of people think about spice when they think about Mexican food. And it's so much of it, it's not spicy. It's really hard. I think lots of people still think Mexican food is unhealthy. It's kind of really heavy in cheese. So it, it feels like we've still, 10 years on, got so much work to do to prove to people that it's vibrant it's you know the pre-hispanic diet is so healthy you know beans and tomatoes and courgettes and all these wild herbs and wild greens so um i guess we're still on that same mission of proving to the uk that it's kind of vibrant and, and, and presumably proving that you can be genuinely sustainable which i know you know obviously you've said is something that you want to do is also quite a challenge as well well we're the first rational group to be zero uh carbon neutral and we've got zero landfill um so those are two amazing great things um we've worked with the msc the marine stewardship council from the word go on the seafood that we put on our menus so it, it's challenging sometimes we've never put octopus on we've never put tuna on uh because it's just something like we feel quite strongly about the the the, the, the sea and the fish <laughs> um, these things I, I i profoundly believe that if you if you stick with these things the message gets out in the end and people understand it and that if you do things really well people just they get it because they know that you you mean what you say well so that definitely i think still isn't good said because we had norovirus at the end of 2016 i was on maternity leave where um quite a lot of our restaurants mysteriously had this virus that kind of came through on one of our supply chains and um it was a pretty big shock to the business. I can and that's the type I mean, of thing. I remember it well. And that's the type of thing that could literally shut a business down. Um, and I think the thing that got us through that was because we've always we've always acted with integrity, I think. We've always tried to act with integrity and um, a sense of humility, but also passion for what we do. And I and I, you know, the, the messages of support we got from I mean, A.A. Gill, famously, I met in Mexico City, has always hated Mexican food. And, you know, three days after the story broke in the press, he was sending me messages on Instagram going, I'm coming in tomorrow with my family. You know, Oaxaca's a great place. And, you know, we got a lot of amazing Yeah, really, that, that's, that's great. Um, so he, that's... he understood, he knew that you were real. That's kind of what I think I was trying to grasp. <clears throat> that people, I, I just yeah. think people can, I think people can feel integrity. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the same. Uh, same with our festival. I mean, I, I was saying to you earlier, you know, it, it's a difficult financial model, 
But I know that everyone who's been knows that we mean it. Yes, yeah. And that we've put a, you know, a, a serious effort into everything. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's a great foundation. I mean, it doesn't make a great business, but it, it does allow you to build. So you're, you're, you know, you're not a house of cards. You're a house with proper foundations. And it definitely, that definitely gets harder as you grow. And, it, yes. and it's so important yeah. to keep that up. You know, we try and take our staff to Mexico and we, you know, and, you know, that that is the challenge of growing. And I think that's why you have to grow slowly because it's impossible to grow without keeping on doing that stuff. Yes. I mean, do you intend to grow a bit more? Uh, well, I love Oaxaca as it is. I mean, I, I don't think you necessarily... Um, but, you know, I guess I'm much more the creative side. But we do have DF Mexico, which is a really lovely brand, um, which is it's a kind of more of a fusion of a very cool New York restaurant and a Mexican kind of diner almost. And it's it's a bit more tongue in cheek. Uh, it's ridiculously cool. Like you go into the store there in Tottenham Court Road and it's full of very young, very hip people having fun. It's. The, the menu is less, um, it's a shorter menu. It's more kind of easily accessible and people are just going crazy for it. So I think... So you might grow that. I think we might open a few more of those. Yeah. They, they seem really fun. We're in like double digit growth. Um, uh, we're just, Pergola's just opened. It's opening next week um, in Paddington. What's that? One of you? It's a pop-up um, kind of market, food market. And right. we've got a site there. So that's just opening next week again. Uh, people seem to go crazy for it, so it's quite fun. So you're quite having fun that like young you might thing do it again. again. Well, you know, who knows? Who knows? But um, okay, so I, I know that um, we've we've both got to go to Islington. Um, but I mean, are you now? I mean, I've got a brilliant new charity. Okay, tell me about the charity. Uh, so um, I'm a trustee of it. Um, it's the direct that's been founded by Henry Dimbleby and Nicole Pisani, um, and a girl called Joe Weinberg. Uh, and the head teacher of a school in Hackney called Gayhurst, um, Louise, and it is all about training school cooks to think and act like chefs. So Nicole is an ex nopi head chef who has turned around the food in a primary school in East London, uh, and she feeds her children 50 pence a day cheaper than the huge contract caterer did before she came. And she feeds them home-baked bread, fresh fish, uh, incredible vegetables. Uh, and she's completely transformed the way all those children eat. And so we are building a model where we um, aim to champion school food and train school cooks to think and behave more like chefs. Um, and in that way, we think we can transform the way the British children eat. It's very exciting. What's the charity called? Uh, chefs in School. Amazing. Those are good people to be working with as well. Yeah. So my, just my final question is, you, you know, you're a Guardian columnist. You, you're, you're an author, you're a restaurateur with two chains, and you're also a mother of three young children. Ha, have you got extraordinary energy, or are you just juggling like most of us would be juggling? Uh, definitely juggling too much. Because people look at, I mean, I think, you know, people that are listening to this look at people like you, and they think, how, do, how, how does that work? How do you do it? So you've met my amazing nanny. Okay. I've got an amazing PA. Uh, I think anyone who does a lot has brilliant people propping them up. I've got lots of great people in my life helping to prop me up. So, uh, you know, I, they're no one's superhuman. I think that's a total myth. Uh, and I, will, <laughs> I was just saying to my husband in despair last night at 11.30, why can't I just do things a bit better? Um, 
so I definitely suffer from that thing of feeling frustrated sometimes that I'm doing too much and not doing some things better. So, you know, that's the eternal question. You can't have it both ways, <laughs> no. you know. Um, and, and then you were emailing me at, I think, 2.06. So you're, you're, you're despairing at 11.30 and then awake again at 2.06. Yeah, well, we're, we're all suffering from jet lag here. So um, yeah. it's that... Ho- still pretty... Still. Back to school, back to school feeling. We've had an ama- we had an amazing eight days where I didn't look at my phone. You actually managed to do that, did you? I'm quite good at switching off. People don't think that, but I'm... See, I can't do that. I mean, I'm just stressed about what it's going to look like when I get back. I know, I know. That's tomorrow's job for me, just going through my inbox. But you've got a PA, so she can... Yes, she helps a bit. She helps a bit with that. I bought you a couple of tiny presents here. And the first one is some crayons, Ah, because I always think of, of you the first time you came to The Good Life drawing with your children. I know, it was so and fun. Saying, um, Lit. saying essentially that I, um, that's the first time I've had time to draw with them for ages. Oh, and I love then, you. And then Thank you. A little, I'm just trying to check that the, um, that the stick, price sticker isn't still on there. <gasps> Salt and pepper? Yeah. Amazing. Do you know those things? Oh, no. It's such a lovely little brand. Oh. Actually, you'll never use them for salt and pepper because they're only good for, um, for ground, ground pepper, but they're still... But they're great. I think they're a pair of Jack Russells. I don't particularly like Jack Russells because I still bear the scars of being, being bitten by one. But Is that I not made char, char really? They're great. They can sit up there because um, we lost a leopard. Our pair of leopards, one of them okay. broken. They can sit up there, probably please. Brilliant. Well, thank, thank you, Tommy. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Tommy. Thank you very, very much for listening to this chat. Thank you also to my friend Jim Friend for his amazing editing skills and his friendship and good advice. After this chat, I actually drove Tommy to Islington. We were both going to within five doors away and we continued the chat driving through one of those remarkable summer days that we get to rarely. And uh, that left me with a good feeling. I felt happy and that I'd done something worthwhile by talking to Tommy. And so, anyway, I'm, ra- I'm rambling on. Thank you very much, and I will see you soon. Bye.